I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 5. It's been now three weeks since we were last here because of the revival, and then uh, Michelle and I were gone last Sunday, and um, so it is, I've been excited to get back here. And, and what we have before us is, is a bit of a difficult text because there's a lot going on in, in Jerusalem, and, and so let me kind of recap a little bit. When we were in chapter 4 three weeks ago, uh, we talked about encountering opposition and how um, just because we are in the middle of God's will, just because we're pursuing his plan for us, doesn't mean that it's all smooth sailing and that, that it's all um, peaches and roses, right? It, it doesn't mean that there will not be hardship there. Um, and so we saw Nehemiah as he was completing the work that there were some guys who really just came up against him. And, and we're threatening the people and, and we're causing the, the morale of the workers to, to drop. And yet God uh, continued working even as the people uh, worked. So that, that opposition was coming primarily from outside the people of God, from, from those who were not working on the wall. And then what we're going to see today is the problems shift inward. And there begins to be some, some groaning and some injustice happening inside uh, the family of God, inside the people of God. Now, now um, I, I'm sure y- you've never seen churches fight, okay? You've never seen um, anybody get mad over the color of carpet or the color of paint or the temperature in the sanctuary, all right? Nothing like that, right? So I know we're going to be talking about other churches this morning, right? No, no, listen, um, we are not immune from these, uh, from these grumblings, from these kind of attacks. So that's why I titled it, The Gospel and grumbling because not only is the gospel going to show us when when our behavior is off and when we need to be called on some stuff but it's going to show us how to respond when we are called to to some things we're going to see that in the life of nehemiah and so if you will turn with me to nehemiah chapter 5 and then stand with me we're going to read through verses through verse 13 right now and then we'll cover all the way through the end of the chapter if you will stand as we read the word the lord has given to us this morning Nehemiah says, there was a widespread outcry from the people and their wives against their Jewish countrymen. Some were saying, we, our sons and our daughters, are numerous. Let us get grain so that we can eat and live. And others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, vineyards, and homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have borrowed money to pay the king's tax on our field and vineyards. We and our children are just like our countrymen and their children, yet we are subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters are already enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. Nehemiah says, I became extremely angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. After seriously considering the matter, I accused the nobles and officials, saying to them, each of you is charging his countrymen interest. So I called a large assembly against them and said, we have done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen who were sold to foreigners, but now, you sit, but now you sell your own countrymen and we have to buy them back. They remained silent and could not say a word. Then I said, what you are doing isn't right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies? Even I, as well as my brothers and my servants, have been lending them money and grain. Please let us stop charging this interest. Return their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses to them uh, immediately, along with the percentage of the money, grain, new wine, and fresh oil that you have been assessing them. They responded, we will return these things and will require nothing more from them. 
We will do as you say. So I summoned the priests and made everyone take an oath to do this. I also shook the folds of my robe and said, may God likewise shake from his house and property. Everyone who doesn't keep this promise, may he be shaken out and have nothing. The whole assembly said amen and they praised the Lord. Then the people did as they had promised. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the opportunity to open up your word. Will you show us what it looks like and, and how we can handle grumbling within the body of Christ and how we can respond when we've been sinned against, maybe even when we've sinned against others, how we can respond in a way that brings glory to your name and unity within your fellowship. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. So what we see here, first of all, in verses 1 through 5, we see that when we lose sight of the gospel, losing sight of the gospel will result in grief. And see, what was happening here is uh, there was so much work to be doing on the wall that the people had left their homes, they had left their fields, and they had come to Jerusalem to begin working on the wall to try to build it up so, so that the people of Jerusalem would be, uh, would be protected. And there was so much work to be done there that, that they had to hire other people to work the fields. And in fact, we're told that even some people had, had to borrow money to pay their taxes. Uh, we see that in verse 4. And others had even reached the point of desperation that they were selling their sons and their daughters into slavery in verse 5. But, but here's the real kicker, all right? They weren't selling them to foreigners. They were selling them to fellow Jews. And so what we see is that some people in their community were profiting off the misfortune of their brothers and sisters. And so you can imagine the, the serious problem that, that, this is, that this is causing. So, so, so some folks come to Nehemiah and they said, listen, we are, we're committed to the work here of the wall, but, but there's some serious injustices happening. We're having to borrow money to pay our taxes. We've mortgaged our fields and our, and our homes so we can be here. We've even reached the point of desperation where we're, we're selling our sons and our daughters into slavery, not to foreigners, but to fellow Jews. Now, what does this have to do with the gospel? Well, for, for one thing, we see that, that there were many in the community who had forgotten what God had told them. Because we see that they're charging their brothers and sisters interest within the church. And in fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 23... Verses 19 through 20, um, Moses gives this command from the Lord. It says, do not charge your brother interest on money, food, or anything that can earn interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you must not charge your brother interest so that the Lord your God may bless you in everything you do in the land you are entering to possess. They lost sight of what God had done for them. And they failed to be obedient to the commands that God had given them. And so, as I said, when we lose sight of the gospel, it will always result in grief. Why? Because in the gospel, in, in, as a believer of Christ, as a follower in Christ, you and I are, are men and women, boys and girls, who have been brought from death to life in Christ Jesus. Therefore, regardless of what else happens in your life and in my life, regardless of what your salary is, regardless of what your social status is, you, you are a child of God 
freely loved and forgiven by him. And if that is not the basis for your identity, you will chase idol after idol after idol, trying to find your identity that will let you down. And so what we see here is some folks who, who had apparently made money their idol. Maybe they wouldn't have recognized that in their own life, but they made money their idol to the point that they were driving their brothers and sisters into poverty. Now, now let's take this and, and, and apply it to the context of a local church really quickly. So, so let's say that we have somebody in, the, in, in our assembly who's who's really struggling financially. And so somebody else swoops in and says, hey, listen, I'm gonna, I'll, I will happily loan you the money. And because you're a brother in Christ, because I love you, I'm only going to charge you double what the bank would charge you in interest. And you're welcome. Okay. Wouldn't we look at that and say, wait a second. Yet folks within the people of God, some profiting, off others' misfortune. Now, as I said, unfortunately, even in New Testament times, so as we transition from, from this Old Testament situation with Nehemiah to New Testament times, churches are not immune to, to this kind of injustice, right? Sometimes, sometimes they're intentional, like, like this situation here. Nobody accidentally started charging their brother's interest, right? That was an intentional uh, decision made on behalf of someone to defraud their brother and sister. Sometimes injustices occur and they're unintentional, like we see in Acts chapter 6. What, what happened is the, the, the uh, it says in those days as the number of disciples was multiplying, so the church was growing. It was growing exponentially. And, and growth sometimes brings problems. Says there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews. So basically, just two different groups, okay? Two, two different groups within the church, different uh, folks from different uh, racial backgrounds, different socio socioeconomic classes, and, and all of a sudden there's a there's a complaint against them that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. So there's a group who says, "Listen, our our, our widows, the, the widows who are of of our." Um, uh, in, in our race are not getting the same treatment as others. And I don't think that was an intentional thing at all. I think it, the, the church grew so fast that some things were overlooked. And so what's the response to this? Well, if you remember in Acts chapter 6, the response is the apostles say, uh, listen, we have our hands full studying and teaching the word of God. And if we were to, to add this to our list of responsibilities, Something or both would suffer. They, neither one would be, do, would be done as well as it should be. And so their response then is to appoint what we've, what we've come to understand are, are the first deacons. They said, appoint for yourselves seven men of good repute who can handle the daily distribution and make sure that no one's being overlooked. And so listen, you're going to hear me say this a couple of times this morning, but it's important to remember um, Churches are imperfect places because they're filled with imperfect people and they have imperfect leaders trying to follow a perfect Savior. Churches are filled with imperfect people led by imperfect people trying to follow a perfect Savior. And sometimes we drop the ball on stuff. And sometimes we are going to offend one another. 
So then the, the question becomes, right, when we lose sight of the gospel, it causes grief. And we are all guilty of that at some point or another, uh, of getting distracted by something shiny, something flashy, or just because we have maybe too much on our plate, we, we get distracted. And so the, the remedy for that is always refocusing on the gospel, refocusing on who I am in Christ, finding my identity there. But when offenses occur, like we have here in Nehemiah, what do we do? Because obviously he couldn't just say, oh, it's not that big a deal. No, he had to do something, right? I mean, there were some folks who were being seriously injured by other members of their community. And so he steps in. And what we see here, starting in verse 6, that ungodly grievances, when, when there's ungodly behavior, ungodly grievances require gospel responses. So we see here in verse 7, um, Nehemiah's first, or verse 6, Nehemiah's first response, like his instinct response, he says, I became extremely angry. Now, we'll see later on in the book, in, in chapter 13, um, Nehemiah has a volatile temper. And so there's some guys there who make him mad. He ends up driving them out, or he ends up dragging them out into the street by their hair and beating them with rods, okay? So, so you don't want to be on Nehemiah's bad side. So his first response is just this anger. But thankfully, here, at least, he tempers that before he goes to them. He tempers it before he goes in and responds to them in person. Because verse 7 says he seriously considered the matter before he responded. Can I tell you there's a pattern here for us when it comes to responding when we've been offended? I, I guarantee if you are human, your first response when, when something happens to you, when somebody says uh, something maybe they shouldn't have said, when, when you are sinned against, your very first response is going to be anger because that's natural. We, we have a self-protection mode that moves in, and I think, I think most of us will immediately get defensive. And so let me tell you, it is very important that you seriously consider the matter before responding. <coughs> seriously consider matters before you respond. Don't just respond. And then he goes on and he reminds them. And I see almost a spirit, there's a spirit of grace here in the way that he responds, even though there are gross injustices happening. There's a spirit of grace because he reminds them, listen, you remember when we came back, we spent a great deal of time and effort and money to buy our brothers and sisters back from foreigners. And now here we are selling each other to one another. And he wraps it all up in verse 9. And he simply says, what you're doing isn't right. There's a call to repentance. Stop what you're doing. Sometimes, there will come a time in each of our lives where we need to be called on the carpet for something we've done. Now, now, again, notice here, I, I believe from, from what I've read, and as I read over this several times this week, this is all done in-house. No one goes to, to the Jerusalem Times and writes a letter to the editor blasting their brothers and sisters. They didn't go to Facebook to lash out. 
They handled it in-house. He goes to the offenders and says, what you're doing isn't right. You've got to stop it. So, So listen, when you've been sinned against, Jesus gives us the template for how to respond. Matthew 18, 15 says this, if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If, if we're sinned against, if, if someone else's behavior is, has, has caused some sort of injury or, or offense to us, do we need to confront it? Yes. Is Facebook the place to do it? Almost never. Sunday school classes are not the place to talk about being offended. First response is to go to someone. And so listen, if you come to me and you say, well, so-and-so has done such-and-such, and, such and, and I'm mad, and, and my, my very first question is, well, have you talked to them? Have you talked to them? Because if we're going to be obedient to what Jesus says, he says, go to the person. I wonder how much grief and anger and bitterness and resentment could be avoided if we obeyed what Jesus told us to do. And then he goes on, I didn't put this in there, but he says, if they won't listen to you, then you take a couple others along. So it can be established between witnesses, and then you tell it to the church. But then Jesus also gives us a, a, a pattern of what to do if we realize we've offended someone. Because sometimes if, if somebody's hurt, they, maybe they don't understand or, or the, they, they don't know quite how to confront us about it. And so Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, If you're offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Man, did, did you see this? Like, like the person who caused the offense. Jesus says that if you, if you recognize that you've done that, that you've, that you've caused some offense, you take the initiative and go and say, hey, look, I, I did this and I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? And so when, when, in Nehemiah, then when the offenders are confronted, when, when Nehemiah says, listen, what you're doing isn't right, you've got to stop this immediately. How do they respond? We see in verse 12, it says they responded, we will return these things and will require nothing more from them. We will do as you say. And so then Nehemiah gives them a, a, an illustration. He starts to shake out his, his robe. So everything that he had, all the coins and all that stuff. And, and as we're going to see in a minute, um, ne- Nehemiah was a man of, of pretty decent wealth. And so he probably had, had a little bit of money in his, in his robes. And he starts shaking it out. And he says, if... if If we don't repent, this is what God's going to do to the house of Israel. To all of us in Jerusalem, he's going to to shake us out just like I'm shaking out my robe. At the end of verse 13, it says, the whole assembly said, Amen, and they praised the Lord. Then the people did as they had promised. There was reconciliation. So yeah, there was some behavior that needed to be confronted and Nehemiah confronted it and people repented and there was reconciliation and there was unity again. Um, see, here's the thing about, about a local church. It has to be a place where, where we give one another freedom to confront us when we step outside of uh, living the way God's called us to live. It has to be a place where sin can be 
confronted and where sin can be confessed without shame, without judgment, but met with grace and love and forgiveness. So so listen, when when somebody sinned against you, lovingly confront them. That doesn't mean you go in shaking your fist saying, how dare you do this to me? You lovingly confront them and say, hey, listen, I, I don't know... I don't know if you know this, I don't know if you meant it this way, but, but this is what you did, and, and, and it has harmed me, it's hurt me. And when you've sinned against someone, gracefully repent. And, and so if you're confronted, don't, don't immediately get defensive. Instead, do some self-examination. Seriously consider the matter. To see if there's some truth in what's being said. Now, maybe, I've, maybe you've been on the end of this as well, where, where you're confronted in a way that's less than loving, and your first response is, I didn't do that. But what, I've, what I'm learning, I can't say I've learned, but I'm learning, is usually there's at least some nugget of truth in what's being said. And if I will let my ego go for a minute, I can recognize a way that I probably acted ungodly and some some repentance that needs to happen and so always whether you're confronting or being confronted or, or just don't know how to respond in a situation james 119 gives us really really good uh, advice my dearly loved brothers understand this everyone must be quick to hear slow to speak and slow to anger quick to hear Slow to speak, not vice versa. The other way is natural, right? Can I tell you what you did wrong? I'll tell you what you did wrong too. No, no, quick to hear. Slow to speak, slow to anger. And here's the last thing. Gospel-centered living requires others-centered living. It it is others-centered. If we're going to be focused on the gospel, the, the Bible calls us to be focused on others. Uh, look with me at verse 14, reading through, we're going to go through 19. It says, furthermore, from the day King Artaxerxes appointed me to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year until his 32nd year, 12 years, I and my associates never ate from the food allotted to the governor. The governors who preceded me had, had heavily burdened the people, taking from them food and wine, as well as a pound of silver. Their subordinates also oppressed the people. But because of the fear of God, I didn't do this. Instead, I devoted myself to the construction of his wall, and all my subordinates were gathered there for the work. We didn't buy any land. Okay, so so what we see here, Nehemiah was made governor over this region. And it says he served for 12 years. Now, now what he probably did is he's looking back. So this is probably after the construction of the wall that he's then appointed governor, and he goes back. And he's looking back on his time, his 12 years there. And he says, even though it was well within my rights to, to collect these things from the people, I didn't do it. Now, to be fair, what we're about to see is Nehemiah was a man of pretty significant wealth. Verse 17. He said, there were 150 Jews and officials as well as guests from the surrounding nations at my table. 150 people at his table. Each day, one ox Six choice sheep and some fowl were prepared for me. An abundance of all kinds of wine was prepared every ten days. 
But I didn't demand the food allotted to the governor because the burden on the people was so heavy. And then he just cries out, remember me favorably, my God, for all I've done for this people. So, so, so the first thing we see here is that he's forfeited his rights. As I said, he's obviously pretty wealthy. If you can, if you can slaughter um, an ox, six choice sheep, and some birds every single day, you're doing pretty well. Now, now some would say here, well, why didn't he sell all he had and give it to the poor? Because we see that in, in uh, the rich young ruler in the New Testament. He wants to come to Jesus, and Jesus says, all right, do, do this. Go, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then you can come follow me. And some will take that as a template for every believer and say every believer should, should sell everything they have. It's, it's a sin for a believer to have any kind of wealth. Except that we see this guy named Zacchaeus. Remember, he was a wee little man. My favorite character in the Bible. I love him, right? He's a man of great wealth. Now, he's defrauded some people, and when, when he comes to faith in Jesus, he willingly sells half of everything he has to, to give back to, to those that he's defrauded. But Jesus does not tell him to go sell everything he has and give it to the poor. So, so here's what I see in this. God can use people of wealth in the kingdom of God. For the rich young ruler, his wealth was an idol. See, the problem wasn't that he had stuff. The problem was that his stuff had him. And so I think to use this as a judgment to say, well, wealthy people, it's not, it's not okay for a follower of Christ to be wealthy. Balderdash. I don't get to use that word very often, so I, and I relish the times that I do. No. So listen, if the Lord has blessed you with wealth, don't feel guilty about that. Instead, use it to further his kingdom. Yeah. And if the Lord has, has not blessed you with material stuff, don't spend all day every day wishing that you had it. Instead, serve him right where you are, stewarding your resources to the best of your ability and to his glory. So the point here, as I said, it's not, it's not just to gain stuff for ourselves. And it's not, we should not hoard wealth just for the sake of hoarding wealth. Instead, we live by a couple of principles. First is known as the golden rule, Matthew seven twelve. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. This is the law and the prophets. Then Matthew 22, 37 through 40, the great commandment. He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. So, so whether poor or rich, the calling is the same. Live with an eye towards others. And within the context of a local church, remember that wealth and social status mean nothing in the kingdom of God. Paul's writing to Galatians who, who were separated by all kinds of barriers, racially, socially, gender. And he says this, 
Galatians 3.28, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. I would add rich or poor, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Okay, so what do we do with all this? How on earth do we apply all this from several thousand years ago into Alamogordo, New Mexico in 2017? Well, first of all, I think we've talked about this already. There will be times that stuff happens in a local church that should not happen within a body of believers. We will sin against one another. But, but listen to me, and, and, and please hear this. When you're sinned against, when, when you are offended, don't push back from the table. Don't break fellowship. Because remember that just as God isn't through working on you, he's not through working on the rest of us either. So give grace and expect to receive grace from one another. I'm going to close with this quote from Charles Spurgeon, one of the most prolific preachers over the past 200 years or so. He led a megachurch in London before the days of sound systems. He would preach to 10,000 people on a weekend using just the projection of his voice. And this is what he said. This is one of the best quotes I've ever, I've ever seen about uh, the local church. He says this, Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. <laughs> I love this. He's, he was called the Prince of Preachers, one of the most dynamic preachers in history. And he says, listen, I'm glad I hadn't found a perfect church, because if I did and I walked in, I would wreck the whole thing. Look here. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. Stay focused on the gospel. Understand that when we, when we misstep, it's going to cause grief. And in those moments where we sin against someone else or where we've been sinned against, let us respond with the gospel, not with simply anger or resentment. Let us respond with the gospel. Meaning when I've been sinned against, I'm free to go and say, hey, listen, this is what you did. And, and, and this was not okay. And when I recognize that I've sinned against someone, I can take that initiative and say, listen, this is what I did, and I know it's not okay. Please forgive me. And then may we look with eyes that are focused outward. Not on number one, not on what's best for me, but what's best for us as a church. What's best for where I can look and, and ask what's best for you, and where we as a church can look and ask what's best, not just so that we're comfortable, what's best to reach Alamogordo with the gospel for the, for the advance of the kingdom and for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you that the, the local church really is the dearest place on earth, even 
even when, when we as, as imperfect men and women slip and fall and, and rub each other the wrong way and sometimes, sometimes cause tension. But just like Nehemiah did, will we lovingly confront sin? Will we allow ourselves to be lovingly confronted when we've sinned? This might be a place where we give one another grace upon grace as we are each being shaped and molded into the image of God. We thank you so much for the grace of Jesus Christ dying in our place on the cross. That allows us to be free from your condemnation on sin. May we reflect that in our relationships with one another that because we know we are not condemned by you we would refuse to condemn one another we need your help we need your guidance we need your forgiveness and the forgiveness of those around us we ask all these things in jesus name amen